Our reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you would have a seat this morning. I want to start by uh, wishing all a happy Father's Day. Uh, but if we're being honest, uh, happy Father's Day is not uh, always what we feel about Father's Day. It's not always a happy kind of day. Uh, for some of us, uh, we're not fathers yet, and so it's not something that really, you know, kind of resonates, like just that uh, impactful time of life where having children hasn't, uh, hasn't been your experience yet, and so it's just not, it's not something that's particularly happy. It's maybe not unhappy. For others of us, it is uh, somewhat unhappy. We have fathers who have uh, passed uh, on from this life, and uh, it's a reminder of that. It's something where, you know, we just, uh, we grieve on a day like today. Still others uh, of us who are fathers are reminded of failures and regrets on Father's Day. We've uh, let the childhood of our you know, children kind of slip away without doing some of the things that we really wanted to do or by doing things that we did not want to do. And so uh, there are just... This day is a reminder of that. It may not be quite as happy. For many in our generation especially uh, have uh, daddy issues. They're just kind of things where uh, the, the uh, imprints, the marks from our fathers when we were growing up, whether by neglect or hurt or abuse, uh, some of us, uh, just leaves this day being one that is not so happy. It's kind of somber. But what I heard this week that was really encouraging to me is, is that we ought to consider uh, Father's Day in light of the Father, the one true and heavenly Father. Because knowing and understanding what fatherhood is is a one-way street. It is from the heavenly Father to us. That is to say that uh, those of us who preach a heresy by our lives, being unkind fathers, provoking our children to anger, being neglectful, sometimes even abusive of children, uh, does not go back upstream telling us who God is. Rather, it is uh, the uh, heavenly Father that tells us what fatherhood is. That is to say, maybe in a different way, that uh, bad fathers don't impugn the heavenly Father's character, 
but rather when we see good fatherliness here on this earth, we get to attribute it because it is only by us reflecting who the one true father is that we get to say anything uh, good in our lives as fatherhood. So we understand what fatherliness is by looking at the one true father. And if any of us is a good father, it is because we are simply mimicking and showing and displaying and imaging forth him. Fathers are good when they are like him. Take that as an exhortation, fathers. Be like your heavenly father. So let us do uh, something. Let us pray that we would listen to our heavenly father, that we would be taught, that we would gather around our heavenly father's word and actually be impacted by that this morning. Bow with me. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good father. Lord, we know that uh, you have things to say to us this morning, so let us listen to you as a father and be taught by you as a father. Let us be corrected and comforted by you as a father. Let us learn to love like your fatherly love. Lord, we pray over this word this morning and just ask you that you would do all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning uh, by way of confession. This, uh, uh, this passage really has done uh, a great amount of comfort and work on me over the last two weeks as I've been studying it. And that is, is that the confession is, is that I was on dad duty last week and just feeling filled with anger. I was driving my kids uh, to uh, Camp Thurman. Uh, and I just realized that I had not used that time in the car effectively at all. I was just brooding. I had this situation at work where I've been kind of forced into a situation where I'm working with a person that, frankly, I think is pretty wicked, is very deceptive, is, uh, takes advantage of other people, is a liar very regularly. And I was just filled with, honestly, nothing else that I could describe it as but hate in my heart, just filled with, like, anger. And, and my kids were acting up in the back, as they always do, and uh, rather than being filled with grace and love, I was frustrated, and uh, that was just kind of adding to the whole situation. We were having a week as a family uh, that honestly just wasn't that great. It was uh, hard to stay focused on being kind and loving towards one another. It was a hard week. It, I was in a bad way. I was out of sorts, and I was angry, and I started to just kind of replay my own thoughts in my mind. Do you ever do this? You kind of, you're driving along, and all of these things are kind of mixed and jumbled up, and then you press the DVR, and you go back through what you've been thinking, and I'm just like, man, I am just angry. I'm filled with, like, anything but love right now, and I'm just tracking back through all of these thoughts and feeling very convicted about it in the Spirit why? Because honestly, uh, there was another kind of revelation that I had. I realized that a lot of these things weren't just consigned to that individual week. It was something that I had been feeling for a long time. It was patterns of behavior that I had allowed to kind of arise in my own heart. Their habits in my own heart of the ways that I think about people, think about my children, think about my family, think about those who I depend on and who depend on me. I just had a lot of things that I realized were habits I was harboring, I do harbor, uh, hate in my heart. It's not, uh, you know, it's not easy to say that out loud. But I've, I've, I've done a lot of things that I've created as just kind of habits of sin. I've let myself regularly get frustrated with family. I've let business obligations in certain areas go. I've had uh, other kind of areas where I've quarantined off my relationship with food and just said, hey, I'm not really going to work on that right now. I just have all of these areas where I I've allowed for my heart to kind of calcify. 
I've allowed it to harden in certain areas. And, and the real realization that was kind of buried in all of this stuff that I was going through on this drive was that I was kind of excusing it. I, I, uh, I have a lot of areas in my life by God's grace right now that are just... They're exemplified by a lot of grace and a lot of faithfulness. I really enjoy being a pastor here. I love uh, being with uh, the people of City Church. I love the obligations, responsibilities, and honestly, just fun that comes along with being a pastor here. And so I feel really good about that. But what I've done is I've let all of those good graces of God kind of mount up in like, you know, an asset side of the uh, ledger. And then I've just kind of accepted long-running sins. I've kind of built pins around them and stopped working on them. If I can be honest, there are certain areas of my life that I was just realizing last week, I've just gotten comfortable with my sin. I'm not fighting it in these areas anymore. And what John does here is affords us a lot of fodder for heart examination. He's going to call us to really high things, and those high things are going to cut us in ways. And then John is also going to give us gospel comfort that I hope covers over those things with a lot of grace. And so John actually has a message for us this morning. And the essence of the message is this, that sinners need to know the righteous advocate and keep his commandment of love. Sinners need to know the righteous advocate and keep the commandment of love. And there's some kind of ingredients that go into this this morning. The first is that we need to understand that God is saving sinners. God is saving sinners. This is going to be something that uh, you're very familiar with. But he's going to have some specific application here. After he tells us that sinners need saving, we're going to get this beautiful, assuring example in Jesus Christ. So that's the second ingredient. And the third one is we are going to learn how to be commandment keepers. Saving sinners, assuring example of Jesus, and commandment keepers. That's what we're learning this morning. By way of some context for us this morning, we've got this book, First John, sitting in front of us, and we're kind of marching through that. We've been in it for two weeks. This is the third week, and First John is written with apostolic authority. Jesus has given authority to John to speak to the uh, churches in Asia Minor and teach us through his word, and he's trying to do something. He's trying to shape our doctrine. He's trying to shape our deeds. He's trying to create places of devotion. Doctrine doctrine, deeds, and devotion. This is going to be something that we return to week after week. And it's not as though every week we only get one, but we will focus on some of these things. So this week, we actually turn away from the doctrine heaviness of the last few weeks, where we were just learning a lot of doctrine, to actually John wanting to teach us something about our deeds, What we see here in the second chapter of John is that he concerns himself with one of the deepest Christian ethics, and that is that the gospel demands love. The gospel demands love. This is placing a demand on you. John is going to remind you of Jesus' words in the gospel, and he's going to place some demands on you. So for those of you who find it hard to love, who, like me, have uh, let little parts of your heart get hateful, angry, resentful, frustrated with people around you, John is going to take a sledgehammer of the gospel to those unloving parts of your heart this morning and demand that you follow a command of love. That's what he's going to do this morning. First, saving sinners. 
First, we need to learn that sin is inexcusable, it is inevitable, but it is not unforgivable. Now, how can I say that, that it is inevitable, that it is uh, not unforgivable? It's because right from the get-go, he wants you to deal with your sin, and he, does, he wants to deal with it in a specific way. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, my little children. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. He begins with these tender words. He's saying, my little children. So when we ask the question, how can we say that sin is inexcusable, inevitable, and, but not unforgivable? It's because that's what John wants us to know. And he wants us to know it in a specific way. He wants to talk about sin. Now that's where we actually get to do that. I uh, have heard from uh, people over the course of the long history of our church saying, why do we focus so much on sin? Wouldn't it be just a lot happier if we always talked about grace and faith and kindness and goodness and love and self-control and these kinds of fruit of the Spirit? Wouldn't it be lovely if we could just be a church that never talked about sin? But here we see that John wants to talk about our sin but he wants to do it in a very careful and tender way. He says, my little children. In fact, you get the idea that he's wanting to shepherd us along, that he's wanting to disciple us. You get the idea that he is actually being obedient to the commandments of Christ, that he go make disciples of every nation. He's writing to these churches. He's writing to us by the power of the Spirit in his word today. He's wanting to let us know that he considers us children, and he's going to deal very carefully but very directly with us as he disciples us. I am writing these things that you may not sin. Sin is inexcusable. This is a, hard, a high bar. There's no mincing of words. He's saying that sin itself is inexcusable. Where I have made room for acceptable sin, excusable sin, like I was talking about earlier, John swiftly and sternly rebukes me. We see in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. That's no mincing of words. We see uh, Jesus say, go and sin no more when he has healed someone. And we get the idea that there is something very stern, very rigid, very exacting about righteousness and our call to it. Thou shalt not. Go sin no more. Here we see, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. This leaves no room for ambivalence or apathy towards sin. I wonder if you identify me, with me this morning, that the older you get, the more kind of uh, pig pens of sin you create in your heart, the more areas where you excuse it, where you say, these kinds of sins are easy for me actually not to commit, so I'm doing pretty good over there. It's easy for me to be uh, kind to this person, but not that person. So I'm going to just build a little pen here where I'm allowed to be perpetually frustrated and angry and hateful towards that person. I wonder if you uh, find certain things at work easy to do. It's like, I really enjoy this. And you get it done. You get it done on time. You work heartily unto the Lord. And those things that you don't like, you put them aside. You don't do them. You hope that nobody notices. You're maybe lazy. You're looking at YouTube on the job. You're doing something other than what God has commanded you to do. You're doing something other than working hard. See a few more smiles on that one than I normally do. I wonder if there are just places in your heart where you've sectioned them off and you've said, these kinds of sins are excusable. I wonder if you've done that in your children or in your spouse or in your best friends. You've said, I'm going to allow them to talk about that person in that kind of way without holding up a standard of righteousness. I'm going to yell at my children because it's okay because they're frustrating me. 
I'm going to be unkind to this group of people. You see that as we get older, we actually just become more accepting of certain sins. I wonder if you do this, what you need to hear is that it is unacceptable, it is inexcusable, but if anyone does sin, John says, We get this idea that that very word but says that it may be inexcusable, but it is inevitable. You will sin. You will continue to sin. In fact, here's what's really funny. Sometimes you read scripture and you kind of read over it the first time and you forget that it's a person writing. I actually think that this statement is a little tongue-in-cheek. He just finished in the last chapter saying uh, you're you're not allowed to sin, but you will sin. You are going to sin. I wonder if you remember in chapter 1 that he clearly says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here he says, immediately after that, but if anybody does sin, it's almost like he's making a little joke. He's saying that tongue in cheek. He's saying, I'm writing you that you may not sin, but if you do sin... He's saying that it is inevitable. Clearly, John is not suggesting that it's possible to go a life without sinning. But he's also not making light of it. Instead, he's upholding the righteous standard. Do not sin. It is inexcusable. But he is also being realistic. But if you do sin, the inevitability of sin, these things actually go together But we need to remember that though it may be inexcusable, it may be inevitable, it is not unforgivable. And John tells us this. He presents to us this beautiful gospel. But if anybody does sin, verse 2, we have an advocate with the Father. I love this possessive language. I wonder if you talk about Jesus that way. Do you talk about Jesus as if you have him, you own him, you're friends with him? You're a brother, you're a sister to him, you have him, you're in his family. I wonder if you think about him that way. You have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ the righteous. I love almost the old English, like, epical nature. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's how he's known. We get over 200 different descriptors of who Jesus is, and here we're told that he is simply the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. We have a righteous one. Sinners need to remember the righteous advocate, the righteous, the perfect, the advocate, the public pleader. I I actually wanted to know what the word advocate mean. I had a really weak definition of it. Uh, Every definition that I could find this week included some sort of public part of the advocacy that it's not simply enough just to be an advocate in private or uh, on the side or uh, silently or quietly. You can't advocate that way. You have to do it publicly. And here we're told that Jesus is our advocate publicly in front of the Father. So we get this righteous redeemer. We get this perfect public pleader on our behalf. And what does he do? It says specifically why we need him. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it's a big word. Many of us have heard of it. Some of us haven't. So what does this word mean to propitiate, to be the propitiation? Jesus is the propitiation we see here. What does that mean? It means that he is the payment. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that bears God's wrath for sin and replaces it with favor. 
Our advocate, our righteous advocate is the propitiation for sin that bears all of the wrath that we deserve for sin and then replaces it with the same favor that he has. That's the kind of advocate that you have. You have a righteous advocate who is actually the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb that takes on God's wrath and then covers over you in God's kindness, his good favor for you. So sin is inexcusable, it is inevitable, but it is not unforgivable. Why? Because we have a propitiation. And it says that he bears God's wrath for your favor, but also it says for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean? What does it mean that he's dying and he is dying as a propitiation, not only for us, John says, but for the whole world? Does that mean that every person will be saved, that every person is included in this propitiating, atoning sacrifice of Jesus? If that's what it meant, it would disagree with everything else that John wrote in his gospel and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So that's not how we can take it. We immediately have a way that we cannot understand it. But yes, we do see that uh, there is some sort of love that is extended to the whole world. We see in uh, John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's this whole world aspect to the forgiveness that God provides. Yes, Jesus commanded the disciples, the apostles, to go and preach the gospel to the whole creation, not to part of it, to the whole thing. But also, the law speaks to everyone that is under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world might be held accountable. We have to hold both of these things in our hand. How do we do it? It's because the atoning sacrifice of Jesus was so powerful, so magnificent, so all-encompassing, so great and so mighty that it had the power to extend to every sin that has ever been committed, to every vestige, every little tiny place in this entire universe that's been affected by sin. Jesus's atoning sacrifice was made good such that everything could be redeemed. But then God also gives those to Jesus who he dies for on the cross. How do we hold those two things in tension? We do it gloriously. We see the power and the magnificence of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, and we see the limited nature in his atoning sacrifice, that it is offered to you, it is offered to everyone. And here, what John is saying, what John is saying is, I'm writing to you, and Jesus died as the atoning sacrifice for you, but not only for you, he made it available to everyone. Man, what a beautiful gospel it is that Jesus' atoning sacrifice, his propitiation, his payment, his atonement, his sacrifice that bears God's wrath is offered to everyone, but that you are included in it. I mean, we are a part of a church that is so large. There are going to be people that you never imagined. I I learned this a couple of uh, weeks ago. I wanted to know how many cities in this world had over a million people in it. So I'm probably aware, I mean, I grew up overseas. I'm probably more aware of geography than the average Texas public school student, okay? I learned that there were 512 cities in this world. Sorry if I offended you, Zane. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're great at it. I was not a good student. Uh, So 
here's, here's the, what I learned. I learned that there were 512 cities in this world that have over a million people in it. That means like, I couldn't possibly know more than like 100 cities. That means that there's like 412 other cities that have millions of people in them. Jesus' atoning sacrifice was for this whole world. I mean, the vastness of the grace of God that he provides for sinners, it's amazing. Sinners need to know, we have to know, that Jesus died for us to save us from our sins. Sinners need to know the righteous advocate. We must know the one who is perfect and who is publicly pleading on our behalf. Verse 3 says this, By this we know that we have come to know him. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you know that you know him? That that word is repeated twice. You'd even do well to circle that word twice in verse 3. No. By this we know that we have come to know him. Do you know that you know the assuring example? He's saving sinners, but here we see that he is our assuring example. Let's pick up in verse 3 and read through verse 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What we see here in verses 3 through 6 is this assuring example. We may know whoever abides or whoever says that he abides in him must walk in the same way that he walked. There are two important things that we get here. First is that one can actually have assurance of their salvation. And the second is, is that we must follow Jesus' example. So one is about assurance and the other is about the example. Is it possible to know that you have been saved by grace through faith? Is it possible for you to have assurance? Two weeks ago when I was going through this process of just cataloging like the hateful heart that I have that morning, I, I was a little fearful just because I was realizing in that moment that I had created space for sin in my life that I just wasn't fighting. And it made me a little fearful because you know what? I know what God's word says about fighting sin. I know what it says about a Christian's duty to actually obey. I know what a changed heart must have to look like in Jesus Christ. And it made me a little fearful. Have I just been faking it this whole time? If I don't care about these areas of sin, is it possible that I am not saved? I wonder if you ever have these kinds of thoughts. I wonder if you ever just need the assurance of God, need him to wrap you up in some sort of like celestial bear hug and just let you know that you are a son or daughter. I know that you do because I have these conversations all the time. I... I, uh, was very good friends with an older man for many years who actually eventually has just stepped out of the church. And it wasn't because he didn't believe that there wasn't a God. It was because he examined his heart and noticed that there was very little love there. He just said, how can I possibly be a real Christian and not have real affections, real love? Can we do this? 
Can we question our salvation? Can we look for assurances of our salvation? Here's what I know. I know that some say, don't doubt. Some people will tell Christians as loudly as they can, don't, don't go around having like doubts about your faith. I think that they would do better to say, don't go around questioning God's sovereign grace. Because for us, we get words like we see in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 that says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. So the question, can we ask these kinds of questions? The answer is yes. In fact, in some places in Scripture, we're actually encouraged to examine our hearts and examine it specifically for faith. Why? Because you want assurance. You want to know that you are in God's family. So I wonder this morning if you ask these kinds of questions. This actually gives us a way to know whether or not we can have assurance. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep the commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you keep God's word? Do you obey his commandments? Now, remember where we just came from with John. He's saying that it is inexcusable, it is inevitable, but it is not unforgivable. So I'm not asking you if you are perfect. He's saying, do not sin. But if you do sin, remember your righteous advocate. Remember Jesus Christ. So I'm not asking you this morning if you have sin in you, we already know. What I'm asking you is, do you strive to keep the commandments of Christ? Do you look to obey your perfect public pleader? Do you keep his word? If you do, there is great hope. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that I don't see a lot of Christ commandment-keeping people that are not in Christ. I think that it really genuinely takes a work of the Spirit for you to want to want to obey Jesus. I think it takes the work of the Spirit to create in you genuine love, genuine peace, genuine kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. I literally think that it takes the Spirit of God. I think that people are so depraved in their heart of hearts, not that they can't act nice on the outside to earn the approval of man. I think that people are so wicked and depraved on the inside that there is no way for them to be genuinely, authentically, godly, gentle in their lives without the work of the Spirit. So when I ask you, do you see evidence of commandment obeying in your lives, of love and all these fruit of the Spirit actually in your life? And if you do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to boast. I want you to boast in Jesus. The, the last week, whenever I was going through this process of just even questioning my faith because of the wickedness that is still in my heart, I still got to run back to those places where God has produced faithfulness in my life and just go, thank you, Jesus. And just have assurance in that moment to feel the gladness of Jesus Christ with me, to actually feel some sense of goodness, not because I've worked hard or, you know, uh, stuck it out or put my nose to the grindstone or whatever other nonsense you want to keep up with. I genuinely see the fingerprints of the Spirit in my life. And you know what I get to do? I get to boast. I get to boast in Jesus. I get to boast in the work of the Spirit. I get to boast in the fact that I have heard the commandments of Christ and that when I do them, I get to experience his joy. I get to experience gladness because I know that he who started a good work in me will complete it. And then I get to also know that when I fail, 
when I don't follow his commandments, when I'm not characterized by love, but rather I'm characterized by hate in my heart, I get to run back to that righteous advocate who provides grace for me. But I don't only want to have assurance. I want to know how to do this. I want to actually know how to live this out. And that's where we need an example. When sin is inexcusable and inevitable, how can we possibly begin to keep his word? How can we follow him? We're exhorted in verse 6 to do this. Walk in the same way he walked. What, what, we're, what John's telling us is, is that Jesus gives us an example of righteousness. He actually lives a perfect life. He lives out in righteousness. He is perfectly kind, perfectly loving, perfectly gentle. And so we get to actually look at his life and follow his example. And when verse 6 says, walk in the same way that he walked, how do we do that? Well, there are plenty of ways. First of all, you've got to read the word. You've got to hear the commandments of Christ so that you know what you're supposed to be doing. But then on the other hand, maybe it's not such a bad idea just to ask from time to time, what is it that Jesus would actually do? What would Jesus do? What is his example? What did he do in these situations that he was faced with? Just to ask that question and to allow Jesus to be your example. Now, for some, they may want to get almost monkish about this and go, Jesus was a carpenter, I'll pick up carpentry. Now, some of you might actually be a lot happier at carpentry than your current job. It might be a great move, but don't do it because Jesus was a carpenter. For others of us, we may go, well, I want to go walk the roads that he walked in Israel. And you go like to the Galilee and you're like, I'm being like Jesus. I'm walking where he walked. That has to be walking like he walked. Don't do that. Well, maybe do that. Go, go visit. But don't think that there's some sort of imputed righteousness as a part of that. It's not a literal thing. What we're being asked to do is walk as Jesus walked, to follow his example, not specifically but for us to live a life of God-glorifying, spirit-filled, self-sacrificial love. John 15 says that indeed greater love has no one than this, that somebody laid down his life for his friends. That's what I think it means to walk like Jesus. I think it means to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to the Father, that is filled with the Spirit, and that the outpouring of which is sacrificial love. And that's where we get our final point for this morning, the commandment keepers. How do we become commandment keepers? If then our righteous advocate is in fact our assuring example, how ought we to live? Verse 7 says this, Beloved, again, loving, kind, gracious writing, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that we have had from the beginning. Verse 8 says, at the same time, it is actually a new commandment, which is true in him and in you. Why? Because he's uh, taken this old commandment and he's made it new. He's renewed it in Christ. He's refined it in Christ. He's actually uh, wants us to reflect Christ in it. What is that commandment? Deuteronomy 6 says this, you shall love the Lord how? With your whole heart, your whole, whole mind, your whole strength, your whole soul. You're supposed to be a whole loving God being. You're supposed to love God with everything that you are. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. That's what he says. You shall love the Lord, uh, your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. So when the rich young ruler and the Pharisees and the scribes actually come up to Jesus and multiple occasions ask, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's virtually the same commandment. And they marvel at this teaching and they say, truly, this is true. But Jesus goes on to refine that and says, but I say to you, you've heard love other people, love your neighbor. I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Romans 13, it says that everything, all of this, all of righteousness is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love actually makes us sons and daughters of God, and love fulfills the law. And this is what we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus truly and deeply loved the world. He loved his enemies. He loved neighbors, and he loved you. Brothers and sisters, he loved you. That's the essence of the gospel. We see here in this very moment that Jesus is our assuring example because he perfectly kept the commandment of love, but then he delivers it to you anew, afresh. It's an old commandment, but it is new Christian, hear Jesus say, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What does that mean? What he's saying in Ephesians chapter 5 is, obey me. Love your brother and sister in Christ just as I have loved you. How is that? That he gave him whole, his whole self for you. So how is City Church to be defined? by the love that we have for one another. How will other people know who Jesus is? By the love that we have for one another. What is the essence of that love? It's the sacrificial love that Jesus had for you. When he sacrifices, when he gives his whole self to you, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. And that's why he commands you, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. John will continue, and we're not going to jump into all of this this morning because he, uh, he puts this, he sprinkles it throughout 1 John. Love is just such a theme that he has, but the commandment that you have this morning is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ as, just as Christ loved the church. He is perfectly sacrificial. So I want to ask you this morning something. Do you? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the commandment that's in front of us this morning. It's not implied, it's stated. It's not just stated one time. It's backed up time and time again in 1 John. It's not just in 1 John, it's in all of John's writings. It's not just in John's writings, it's in most of the epistles. It's not just in most of the epistles, it's in all of the gospels. Jesus commands you to be a loving, sacrificial person towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I just want to ask you, with all of that kind of out there in the ether, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? What evidence do you have that you love one another? Do you know that it's one of the greatest apologetics that we have, one of the best defenses that we have, one of the best testimonies that we have is actually how we love one another? Here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> I want you this week to examine your life do you love like Jesus loved the church? And where you do, I want you to boast in Christ. 
I want you to be assured. I want you to have that assuring example that Jesus gives you uh, being imprinted on your heart and for you just to celebrate it. Say thank you, God. But I also want you to recognize where you don't and ask for God's help to be more loving, more generous, more charitable, more gracious, have more good faith with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I want you to do one more thing. I want you to tell other people in our body or other Christians in other churches where you've recognized them being really loving, I want you to go tell them, thank you. I want you to encourage them with that. I want you to say, you know what? I see you being obedient to your Savior. Are you bold enough to do that? Are you bold enough to just look over the next week and see who is it that is truly loving like Jesus is loving and just go tell them so? You don't have to make a big deal about it. They'll probably feel a little awkward. They'll say something like, well, you know, just got to say thank you to Jesus and everything because it's, it's awkward to receive compliments. But I want you to do it because this is something that we need to foster, that we need to grow, that we need to be built up in is love. Love is the greatest commandment. There is none greater. So we cannot make friends with our hateful sin for me, the other morning, I just decided there are some things that have to change. I have to start fighting these areas of hate in my own heart. And we must walk in love as Christ loved us. Sinners must know the righteous advocate and keep his commandments of love, first for salvation, next for assurance of that faith, and finally, just to reveal Jesus in his light, just as this text says. Let me pray that over you this morning. God and Father, you are filled with love. Your love uh, pushes you to uh, be filled with grace towards sinners like us. And so this morning we see that sin really is inexcusable. It is inevitable, but it is not unforgivable because we have a perfect righteous advocate who is slain, who is killed on a cross for our sins. And because of that, and because of his resurrection, he gets to, uh, uh, to show us, to exemplify what righteousness looks like. He gets to uh, show us and give us assurance of that kind of love when it comes out of us. He gets to command love from us and encourage us when it comes out of us. Lord, we want to be a loving group of people here. Father, that can really only be accomplished by the fruit of your spirit. So we ask for your spirit. We ask for the empowerment of your spirit to give us love. Lord, not just over the next week, but Lord, for forever. Father, we are told that love has none greater than this. That a person lay down his life for a friend and Jesus calls us friends in that moment. Lord, I pray that uh, as you give the people of City Church assurance this week, Lord, that they would feel friends with you, that they would feel friends with Jesus. Lord, that they would know of the friendship that they have by grace. Lord, I ask you that you would fill us with faith this week and Lord, that we would... Um, uh, do some hard work examining our hearts to see where it is that we have uh, calcified, you know, hatred-filled places in our heart and that you would soften those things, Lord, so that we might be more loving. Lord, we love you. It's only by, God's, by your grace that we do. It's only because you first loved us that we get to love you back. Lord, so I pray that as we turn our attention towards communion 
and the singing of songs and the giving of tithes and the fellowship of the saints. Lord, I ask you that you would fill us with a great deal of love and Lord, that you would allow for us to sing about it. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.